Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's scripture is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 1 to 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in this moment, We come from a variety of backgrounds and perspectives, even as we hear the words of this scripture today, believing or unbelieving, most of us somewhere in between. We come to this moment optimistic, energetic, capable, passionate, excited, affluent, entertained. We come to this moment scared, alone, sad heartbroken, fearful of the future, depressed or angry, just holding a grudge and it's eroding us from inside but we can't let it go and we're dying. Help us to see however we come to this very moment we have far more in common than we realize. That you see us in all of our complexity, all our contradictions, in all of the beauty of our lives and all the brokenness, you know us to the depths and you love us to the highest heights. And you reveal that love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray now that you would break through all the static with the resonating voice that says, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed. Wake us up to your grace and send us out to be your very agents of renewal and resurrection 
wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're continuing our series in the Beatitudes. And last week we looked at blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And these, today we look at blessed are those who mourn for those who will be comforted. That's a really interesting thing because in Matthew chapter 5, the New Testament was by and large written in Greek. And the Greek word for blessed is this, it's a really Greek idea, makarios, which was the Greek way of describing the life of the gods. What would it be like to live on Mount Olympus with Zeus and all of them? Makarios, blessed, fortunate. So right now Jesus is saying, fortunate are you when you mourn. What? Fortunate are you when you're not fortunate. What are you talking about? Now, I want to remind you, these are not prescriptions, they're descriptions. In other words, these are not nine ways Jesus is saying, go out there and make yourself poor in spirit. Go out there and make yourself mourn. Go out there and make yourself get persecuted. He's saying, if you live long enough and you follow me, the true king of the kingdom, which is upside down but right side up from the kingdom of this world, you can expect to be poor in spirit. You can expect to mourn. You can expect to be persecuted. And it's then when either the world out there or the inner critic in here is pointing at you and laughing, he says it's actually there when the world has given up on you that I want you to remember you're more fortunate than you realize. Let's get into that. Now, as I was preparing this sermon, I realized that one of the gifts of just the whole archive of Scripture if you choose not to cherry pick from it, but you really just go through the scriptures, it's going to play some of your favorite songs, and it's going to play some songs you don't want to play. Right? Just like if you get a good nutritionist, they're going to they're give you some of your favorite recipes, and they're going to give you some food you don't want to eat, but it's good for you. Normally when I prepare a sermon on mourning, grief, or loss, I start with something like, ha, 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 well, you all know me. I don't like sadness or sorrow. I wish someone else could give this sermon or something like that. And I realized this time around, something's changing for me. Because I'm learning that mourning is not only a critical life skill, it's also a gateway to really deep healing. It's one of the gifts that God gives us. As San Diegans, we don't do grief. We don't do mourning. We do sunshine. We do surf. We do happy hour. We do keep the outside appearance good at all costs. And we get exhausted. So let's take a look today at this deeper way of life. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's just look at the reality of sorrow, God's response to sorrow, and the renewal of our sorrow. First, the reality of sorrow. I was walking down 30th Street the other day, and I was struck by this woman who was walking by me, very well put together, makeup and hair well done, and she had a new crisp t-shirt on that said, if you don't heal your wounds, you will bleed on the people who didn't cut you. Whoa. If you don't heal your wounds, you will bleed on the people who didn't cut you. That woman has a story. You know how I know? Because she's a human being and she lives in this world. You have a story. And if you don't heal from your wounds, you will bleed on the people who didn't cut you. 
See, we all experience pain, regret, disappointment, or fear. The question is, what do you do with it? I mean, think about it. When you look at the world right now, what breaks your heart? I'm afraid to turn on my internet browser because it opens to the New York Times front page and it's Putin has 300,000 new troops and he's conscripting other people in Ukraine. And by the way, Iran is burning in the streets right now because everybody's so mad. And by the way, when you, you, you read the saying, you get, you get it. What breaks your heart when you look at it? That's not neutral. It's amazing actually that we can open it, read that many bad accounts of the news, walk away and go have breakfast with a friend like nothing happened. It's doing something in there. What breaks your heart? What about when you look at your own life? What disappointments do you live with right now? Where do you feel loneliness or pain or sorrow? And what do you do with it? I had a mentor who used to say, you have to do something healthy with your grief or else you'll do something unhealthy with it. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. So what do you do with it? I mean, I think our first instinct is to turn away from the pain in one way or another, right? And this happens at the, at the very, you know, most basic biological level. Your limbic system, your reptilian brain, you touch a hot stove, you pull your hand away. You want to get away from pain. That's, that's good. You should get away from pain. But we make a lifestyle of it. And so... The sorrow kind of raises up in your life. You wanted to get a promotion, but you didn't. You wanted to get a job, but you didn't. You wanted to get a partner, but you didn't. Or you did get the partner, but it's not working out. And it hurts. So one way is just to medicate it. You know, at the end of the day, one cocktail, a glass of wine, it's nice. It's a a pleasure. It's a joy for you if you can do that responsibly. But then you get to four or five or six, and you realize what started as a nice way to relax has turned into an escape. One episode of Netflix or two, but you know when it gets to six or seven or eight at the end of the night, it's turned, in, it's turned into more than ent- entertainment. It's an escape. We do this with work as well. See, we can take good things and we make them ultimate things and we put them in that place of comforter and it works for a moment, but then the medicine becomes the problem. What do you do with a sorrow in your life? Or we minimize it. I mean, you might have just gotten relationally run over. And your friend goes, how are you doing? You go, I'm fine. I'm okay. So you can't help somebody that can't admit they need help. So we minimize it. Or we just ignore it. We have plenty of other things to do. We have, you know, the work to do and the social life to do and keeping in shape and enjoying the outdoors and all of that. And we just keep moving forward. Don't look back, keep moving forward. But the problem is that the pain is not in the past. The pain's right here still. So we carry it forward with us. I'll I'll go to Seattle tomorrow to do some, I have a side job where I coach um, Fortune 500 business executives to communicate. So I'll be in Seattle tomorrow with a tech company and When I gear up for one of these, I kind of think through some of the highlights of the past ones. And sometimes the highlights are odd. Like a friend asked at at, uh, dinner last night, like, tell me about one of the weird highlights of being an executive coach. It's dark, but this is a sermon on morning, so here it comes. 
I was in, um, I, don't even rem- I, I don't even remember what city, that sounds so dumb. I was in Phoenix, and I was working at a tech company, and there were 10 business execs all put together, all wealthy, all powerful, and there was one woman there who would not listen to a thing. She sat in the front, she rolled her eyes, she scoffed, and after the first break, I mean, that's a hard, that's a hard person to preach to, that's a hard person to coach. After the first break, she didn't come back. And so I went looking for her as far as my little ID badge could get me. And th- I, there was like the main room and then I have my own little office they give me for the day. So I just go into my office and I look around, it's a big room, and I don't see anybody. But I can smell her perfume. I remember she had a lot of perfume on. <laughs> I look how the door had opened, I look behind it, and she's curled up in the fetal position on the ground crying. And I sat next to her. I said, hey, if you want me to leave you alone, I'll leave you alone. She said, please stay. I said, if you want to talk, we can talk. If you don't, we don't have to. She said, my husband died in a car accident four days ago, and I don't know what to do, so I come to work every day and just pretend like everything's normal. If you don't heal from your wounds, you're going to bleed on people that didn't cut you. But this woman was walking around with a volcano happening in her heart, and she was trying to pretend like nothing happened because it's all she knew how to do. It's all she knew how to do. Now, that's an extreme example of extreme loss. But I think we do the same thing. The question is, what do you do with the grief and the disappointment in your life? Where do you take it? Where can you take it? And we see throughout the life of Jesus that God's response to our sorrow is to enter into it, to take it upon himself, and to eventually do something about it which provides not just cold comfort or the kind of blind faith where you close your eyes and say, I'm sure it's going to be fine, or you wish somebody a Hallmark-style platitude of these things happen for a reason and all. No. If you ever received any kind of comfort like that, you know it makes you only feel more alone and misunderstood. God actually enters into and shares your pain. I mean, think about it. If Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, in other words, if when you look at Jesus, you see the face of the God that created you, Jesus is what God has to say to this world. And what does God do about suffering? Chooses to enter into it. See, Jesus' suffering did not win. Okay, pop quiz, don't yell this out. Uh, Or you can, but you might be wrong, you might be right, whatever. Um, But there is a right answer. When did Jesus begin suffering? Someone says, when he went to the cross. Someone says, no, I read the story. It was the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was sweating blood. I would make the case to you that Jesus began suffering on Christmas morning. For the first time in all creation, the infinite God who created everything knew what it was like to be a vulnerable little baby that was cold. Psychologists and um, people working on neuroscientists know now that there are memories that are imprinted on us when we are little, as early as the birthing process, potentially even in the womb, but that's way above my pay grade in that area. But the point is, before you remember, your body remembers. There's something in Jesus that remembers having to flee his hometown and go to Egypt because Herod was trying to kill all of the babies in his hometown. 
God entered into suffering. In Jesus, you have God who knows what it's like to have your friend betray you. God who knows what it's like to be in pain. God who knows what it's like to have his mom and his brothers say he's crazy. Happened in the Gospel of Mark. God who knows what it's like to be disappointed. You see Jesus facing his pain. Instead of turning away from it and running away from it, he faces his pain. When his cousin John the Baptist was beheaded, Jesus went to a solitary place to be alone to confront what was happening in his life, in his family, in his world. He didn't get busier. He slowed things down and confronted it. When his friend Lazarus died, he went toward the tomb, and even though he knew later that day he would rise, raise Lazarus from the dead, in that moment, Lazarus was dead, and it says, Jesus wept. Jesus, who went over Jerusalem and cried over a city, wept over the city of Jerusalem because of its structural injustices as he said, you are the city who loves to kill the prophets. Oh, how I wish I could just be like a mother hen and put my arms around you and protect you and call you my own. I am crying for the way you've lost your way. And on the cross, when he's abandoned, when he's alone, when he's in physical excruciating pain. Side note, excruciating is a word they had to make up to describe the kind of pain you would go through if you were crucified. Excruciating. Out of the cross. He was in pain. And they offered him wine to dull his pain. I probably would have taken the wine. And he didn't. In other words, he let the full weight of your pain and sorrow crash upon himself. A God who knows what it's like to be you. In Jesus, you see God who chooses to enter into your pain, takes it upon himself, and promises to one day do something about it. And that one day do something about it what we have received is the resurrection of Jesus is a sneak preview of things to come. As surely as he took pain and sin and sorrow and death upon himself and came out the other side three days later in the victory of the resurrection, so shall one day he make all things new in your life and in mine and in this world. Which enables you to face the pain. Now, what does that look like? We talked about the reality of sorrow, God's response to our sorrow. Let's look at the renewal of sorrow, facing the pain. A whole new confidence that God will be with you even in this season to bring you solace. Or maybe it's reasoning with yourself, even though you feel alone, you are never alone. Now, the caveat before we get into some very practical ways to apply this, here's the caveat. Don't force this. Healing takes time. If someone goes to a doctor and they have a broken leg and the doctor says, just start running as fast as you can, as soon as you can, that's malpractice. Right? So the goal is to end up running 
but it's gonna take some physical therapy and some time. So do this at a healthy pace. But how do you enter into the renewal of sorrow? How do you enter into this truth, this reality of God meeting you in your pain? First, make space to mourn. Make space. Give your life, give your soul some air and some room to breathe. It's uncomfortable. It can be. But it's the way to healing. Or maybe the first thing is to acknowledge that you're hurt, that you're sad, that you're regretful, that you're disappointed. Maybe it's just to move from denial to acknowledgement. I mean, this is what our friends in the 12-step recovery programs teach us. No matter what recovery program you're in, step one is basically the same. I'm powerless over my life, and my life has become unmanageable. I can't do it. What do you need to acknowledge? First step of treating any illness is diagnosing it. Second, wait in stillness. Instead of moving fast all the time, actually wait in stillness. And what do you do while you're waiting? Here it is. You breathe. I mean, everything, all sorts of different disciplines, different religions, different practices, all come back to breathing. A, it's one of the things you do without thinking about. It's part of what it means to be a human being. But it's part of your own healing and regeneration, every breath you take. Every breath you take, you are literally expelling toxic air and inhaling fresh air. It's literally rejuvenating your body. When you learn to go into really cold water, if you do open ocean cold water swimming, one of the first things they teach you is as soon as it hits you, you're going to want to hold your breath, but you can't. You've got to have your head above the water. Breathe. Any woman who's gone into labor and had a child knows when the pain comes, one of the ways you deal with it is you breathe. Anyone who's ever been through a panic attack before knows that one of the first things they need to do is breathe. So you make space. You breathe. These, these are tactical ways. This is what it looks like to face pain. Now, those two aren't as active. What else can you do? Write out your complaint. Write out your loss. Write out your lament. Grab a piece of paper and I, I'm a big fan of not typing it, but actually writing out with your hand and a pen and paper, it does something to bridge the right and left hemispheres of your brain in a way that typing does not. Write out your complaint. When I was in San Francisco, I was a pastor of a neighborhood church, and part of that role was to be a chaplain at a group called New Door Ventures that helped at-risk youth get new job and life opportunities. Nothing stops a bullet like a job. That was the idea. And in 2016, there was the tragic shooting in Orlando, Florida at the nightclub where a lot of members of the gay community there were targeted and that, that affected deeply the members of our neighborhood. And they asked me to come in. They said, Please, everyone's just broken. Please do something. Okay. Well, what, what are my tools? Write out your complaint. We, we sat in that room and we wrote out how mad we were at God, how sad we were at this world, how upset, confused, and scared we were, and we let it go. 
and it dislodged stuff that was deep in there. Write a song, write a poem, and feel free to be raw. In Jesus on the cross, you have him quoting the beginning of Psalm 22. Jesus, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God who knows what it's like to feel forsaken by God. Mourn in solitude. This is the next one. Mourn in solitude. Sometimes you just want to be alone and that's okay. But don't isolate. So mourn in solitude and in good company. C.S. Lewis in his book, A Grief Observed, about the loss of his dear wife, Joy, says, all these people keep coming in my living room and trying to talk to me. I don't want to talk to them. But I don't want them to leave either. I just want them to be there and leave me alone. <laughs> and I've learned, I mean, that's been one of the things I've had to learn as a pastor over 20 years is oftentimes when you're going through grief, it's my job to simply be there and just sit there. We call that practicing the presence of Christ. I see that happening in our community group already. And we've just been meeting a couple times and we're bearing witness to each other's vulnerable things that we're sharing, not needing to fix each other, not needing to go into problem-solving mode, just listening. The Irish say, a problem shared is a problem halved. So we get to half each other's problems by just sharing them. And then finally, mourn with those who mourn. This is the pattern of the gospel. Reunited with God, reconnected with each other, and then redirected outward in mission to mourn with those who mourn. It's more uncomfortable Oftentimes, mourning with those who mourn, here's, here are like the difficulties that I have identified in my life. Maybe you can relate. One, I'm too busy. So I have to consciously create margins in my life to be interrupted. Two, it's often uncomfortable because the sorrow that person is going through touches and wakes up some of the sorrow in my own life. But this is also the gift because it pushes you into greater healing for yourself. And so you become, what if you become the person in your office who people know when they just blew it in one way or another, they come to you during lunch and say, hey, can I tell you this thing? What if you're the person in your family or the person on your street? Mourn with those who mourn. Uh, Florence and I went to this concert last week and the opener was a woman from Britain named Kings Elliot and she was sad in terms of her composure and temperament and personality. She was beautifully wonderful in, in her musical abilities, but she comes up in her great British accent, South Britain, and says, um, South England, she says, okay, everybody, I'm going to open up my life now and sing really sad songs to you, and I'll feel better when I'm done. <laughs> and that's what we get to do to each other, to sing a new song together. A song that's rooted in reality, that faces the pain, but also has hope that God is at work renewing and restoring everything. Let's pray. Gracious God, please meet us in this place now. You are the healer, the restorer, the redeemer of all things. And so in the places of our lives of which we are aware and acknowledging now, where we need your comfort, where we're in pain, where we're experiencing loss, where we're experiencing confusion. Give us your grace. 
Grant us your Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And send us out to be a people who can mourn with those who mourn. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray, and renew the face of the earth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon.